So when I go back and look at the 1910 pictures, and sometimes when I'm looking at the pictures, there's no date on them. You have to kind of pull from the dress, all the styles that women wore and such to say, okay, this must be this year. Uh, I thought I had a copy of a book. Let me get it. Sandra Parham is the executive director of the Meharry Medical School Library in Nashville, Tennessee. And while working in the library, she literally wrote the book on Meharry's history. It's sort of an anthology in photos of the school's historic tenure. It's Meharry Medical College. Again, it's the Arcadia book, but it's just full of pictures. And honestly, the majority of the book is about early Meharry. Again, you look at the garb. The students were clean, as they say. You didn't see people coming in like ragamuffins. No, they they were proud to be um, the Harry students. Meharry is a historically black medical school that's been around since 1876, which is only about a decade after the last enslaved people in America were freed. It was founded as part of Central Tennessee College, but the name was eventually changed to Meharry to honor one of the original donors to the school. It was the first medical school for black students in the American South. I'm always cognizant of emancipation. If you were born a child and, and uh, enslaved, you could have eventually become a Meharry graduate. That's how close we were from here to here. In 1910, Meharry was one of seven medical schools across the country where black students could become physicians. But one man was about to change the landscape drastically. On his assessment, schools around the country would be closed. And though people heralded the changes as ushering in the dawn of modern medicine, they would also have a chilling effect on the future of black physicians, the echoes of which are still felt today. This is Color Code, a podcast from STAT. I'm Nicholas St. Fleur, a science and health reporter. In over eight episodes, I'm taking a look at the hidden and not-so-hidden forces behind our country's stark racial health inequities. This is episode two. Today, we're talking about the Flexner Report. In 1910, Meharry had the largest class that they'd have 500 students graduating, so much so that they had the uh, commencement exercises in the Ryman Auditorium. That's another story. But um, you go back to say, why were the classes so large? And you think uh, that the students were mainly from the South. The students were from everywhere across the country. Why? There were only two schools to choose from, Howard and Meharry. If you're listening to this podcast, maybe you've heard of the Flexner Report, or maybe not. Either way, you've definitely seen its effects. Five schools closed that could have been also producing physicians for their local community. The Flexner Report is a book-length document that assessed the state of medical education in the country. It was written in 1910 by this guy, Abraham Flexner, for the Carnegie Foundation and supported by the American Medical Association. The basic consequences of the report that you need to know are that it led to a major overhaul of medical education for everyone. It meant higher standards, more stringent science, and the closure of any schools that didn't make the cut. 
As part of the report, Flexner evaluated all of the medical schools that existed at the time, including the seven medical schools for Black students. He decided that many of the white schools and five of the Black schools needed to close. Meharry, where Sandra works, and Howard University in D.C. were the only two medical schools for Black students that stayed open after the report was released. Flexner reasoned that, of course, a couple Black medical schools needed to stay open. His thoughts were that Black doctors needed to prevent Black people from getting white people sick. Flexner wrote, and this is a direct quote, that the schools were in no position to make any contribution of value to the solution of the problem. That problem being that black people and white people are interconnected. The Flexner report was uh, helpful to Meharry and Howard, but I don't think anyone would look at it and say, oh my goodness, thank you. You don't see any schools named Flexner, okay? When I went back to look at the Meharry News, they started the, the conversation about the number of graduates. There was one short article about Flexner. They recognized then that this was a report that was still damning to the African-American community. But there have been awards and honors named after him. While the largely white medical profession has celebrated Flexner's work for the past hundred years, the rate of Black students entering medical school has been stagnant. And, in fact, in 2019, the rate of Black male medical students actually decreased from what it was in 1978. This lack of representation creates a huge burden and lots of stigma for the small number of Black medical students and physicians that are out there. I just literally just ended my clinic day. Um... Oh, I should introduce myself, right? So my name is Max. I'm a medical resident. Dr. Max Jordan Gumanitiako is a first-year medical resident. When we talked, he was still at work. I'm on the primary care kind of block right now. So most of my time for, for the last like week or so has been in the outpatient setting. Max also somehow finds time to write, research, and record his own podcast called Flip the Script about racial health inequities. You know, our education related to health equity kind of sucks, like in med school, right? And I'm tired of having these conversations over and over and over in non-classroom settings where I'm like having a conversation and someone is like, oh, no, it's not because of X, Y, and Z inequality. And I'm like, actually, it is. And, and Max, who is Black, attended Howard University for his undergrad education, which is an HBCU, an historically Black college or university. For medical school, he went to Yale, which is predominantly white. Like at Howard, where I went for undergrad, um, just about everybody was black, right? I never wondered whether any kind of feedback or critique or whatever was, you know, sent my way was because I was black. And that, like, not, was not the case when I was at Yale, right? Because, like, before you get the feedback, you kind of kind of notice, like, the the way you're treated differently compared to your white peers, right? Like, that is something I noticed over and over. I was often treated differently, like being on the team, not all the time. There are plenty of times where I was like, oh, I'm on a great team, I love my resident, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there were also times where I felt like I was being like singled out, sometimes with good intentions, but it was still being singled out. And it was exhausting. <laughs> This is the situation for most Black medical students in America. Over a century after the publication of Flexner's report, 
medicine is still dominated by white physicians. And black physicians and black medical students can often feel like they're alone or like they're the only ones. Medicine has a feel sort of like celebrated Flexner as like this sort of like revolutionary or pioneer of medical education and like was comfortable disregarding, right, like the the racist (laughs) components of the report. To Flexner, the purpose of the Black physician was to like do sanitarian work in medicine, which is like, you know, preventing infectious disease spread, like which is today's version of like your family medicine doctor or like maybe emergency medicine, right? The people who are sort of at the front lines of like detecting epidemics type thing. And and then goes on to say, and not surgery. If you look at the HBCU medical schools, they are more focused on primary care, right? It's not a bad thing. I think what Flexner described as hygiene back then, I think it's probably more important than surgery, but like the idea of segregating black doctors in that space, knowing that surgery was and remains more lucrative is a problem uh, in itself. Like, I think there's just like overvaluing of surgical services or procedural services compared to primary care today that probably stems from a very long history of like seeing what being a hygienist as a less worthwhile endeavor. You know, I pulled out a quote here. Flexner says, the practice of the Negro doctor will be limited to his own race, which in its turn will be cared for better by good Negro physicians than by poor white ones. But the physical well-being of the Negro is not only of moment to the Negro himself. 10 million of them live in close contact with 60 million whites. Not only does the Negro himself suffer from hookworm and tuberculosis, he communicates them to his white neighbors precisely as the ignorant and unfortunate white contaminants him. The Negro must be educated not only for his sake, but for ours. He is, as far as the human eye can see, a permanent factor in the nation. It's like racist racist pragmatism, right? Like, I mean, and it's actually really funny to read that in COVID times because, like, as racist as this man might have been or was, right, he also recognized that we do live interconnected lives in ways that today's um, like COVID denialists or people who are sort of like against preventive measures against COVID are kind of like refusing to acknowledge. Despite the explicit racism in Flexner's point of view, this recognition was part of the change happening in medicine. In a way, science and hygiene were sort of revolutionary at the time. In that time period, uh, after the Civil War, regulation of medical education was uh, non-existent, essentially. That's Dr. Todd Sabat, who's a historian of medicine at East Carolina University. He says the entire profession was sort of a free-for-all. There were a lot of white schools operating without standards or supervision, and black schools struggled to find resources. You've all heard of Louis Pasteur and germ theory, that the germs cause disease. That isn't until the late 19th century, 1870s, 1880s, and not accepted until 1890s, 1900. So medicine was at a different state. People would say, well, I can take care of myself, or I'm going to use botanical uh, medicines, botanical treatments to take care of my illnesses, or... 
whatever. People had all kinds of theories. So to be clear, the Flexner Report was not all about race. In fact, the whole document includes just one chapter that's about two pages long on what Flexner calls the medical education of the American Negro. As medicine started becoming a bit more scientific, groups like the American Medical Association, or AMA, wanted to standardize things and regulate more. They started creating licensing exams for physicians, meaning they needed good medical schools. So they asked Flexner to go out and get a lay of the land. Flexner went around the country by train and horse and buggy and and wrote this report, which we now call the Flexner Report. It got published in 1910, had chapters on various aspects of medicine, including what would ideal medical education look like. The the ideal school was thought to be this new school that was founded in Baltimore called Johns Hopkins University Medical School. You've heard of Johns Hopkins. It's still one of the premier medical institutions in the country. Back then, not many schools lived up to the model of scientific rigor it had set. You get rid of the um, sectarian schools, get rid of the homeopathic schools, you get rid of the eclectic schools, you get rid of any schools that you think are quack schools. Uh, uh, Diploma mills is what they called them. And the joke, there was at least one dog that got a, a degree as a mail, through a mail order diploma. But what the Flexner report did was to legitimize the schools that they thought were, were worthy of, of remaining in business and reduce the number of physicians to a manageable number. So Flexner really cracked down on the institutions. That's why for so long he was renowned within the medical community as the father of modern medical education. He didn't save his venom for the black schools. He wasn't looking to to do anything to the black schools compared to the white schools. He was trying to clean out medical education and get medical schools that would train physicians that patients would trust. Um, That's what the AMA wanted. The two pages of the report on black schools are full of racist assumptions. Here's one quote. The Negro is perhaps more easily taken in than the white. And as his means of extricating himself from a blunder are limited, it is all the more cruel to abuse his ignorance through any sort of pretense. A well-taught Negro sanitarian will be immensely useful. An essentially untrained Negro Wearing an MD degree is dangerous. Was he even qualified to do this assessment? It's a good question. Um, some would say no. I mean, he he knew education, and he was probably a quick study and probably figured out what was good. If you got down to the nitty-gritty, would he know the details? Probably not. Um, but he was a smart guy. He was not a physician. His only contact with the medical world was, I guess, when he got sick. He was not an expert in medicine or medical education. Um, but he was respected as an educator. After he wrote the report, 
Flexner was hired by the same institutions to help distribute funds for medical schools. Though Savitt believes Flexner wasn't out to get black medical schools, he noted during our conversation that Flexner did prioritize the white schools. I, I don't want to say that the Flexner report brought us to where we are today, because I don't think that's true. I think that what was happening when the Flexner report was written was that black schools were on decline, as were white, some, a number of white schools. But it, the impact on black schools as science entered medicine, as funding dried up, as the need for black, uh, for care for black patients grew and the number of, of people who could take, would take care of them shrank, that made a problem. So I, what was the, what's the legacy of the Flexner Report? Gosh, that's a, it's a really hard question. I, I saw that study, you know, I think it's a simulation study, right? You can't, like, if it's a... It's that's a Max again. The study we're referring to was published by JAMA Network Open in the summer of 2020. And I think, I don't know, it's, it's hard to say, right? Had there not been a Flexner report um, and that there had been those medical schools like remain, like, I don't know, would they have closed their doors after, I mean, a lot of other colleges close their doors for other reasons, right? Like uh, Morris Brown College in Atlanta is like standing, barely standing on a leg. That's an HBCU, right? There are lots of HBCUs that are struggling ter- like terribly right now. The, it, there are lots of assumptions baked into that study, right? They assume like, oh, this is how medical schools have grown over time, and, and we're assumed that the student body at these schools would have grown by X, Y, and Z much, right? But also knowing the landscape of higher education and how poorly funded HBCUs have been and the sort of extractive nature, right? Um, and when you look at the relationship between HBCUs and the state, um, it, it's hard to say, right? Those HBCUs might have remained open and, you know, Without a Flexner report, something else might have done them in. So what you're kind of saying, um, or at least how, how I'm hearing it, is that the Flexner report definitely did, you know, some damage, or at least it 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 it's definitely a a factor, but it isn't the biggest factor by a long shot. It, there are other systemic issues that have really led to the dearth of of, of black physicians that we see in this country. This is what I mean. So the Flexner report was a report, right? It was a document, right? It, it it wasn't. It was a document that had in itself, by itself, no power, right? But the engendering of the Flexner report was funded by the Carnegie Foundation and the AMA, right? And then whether or not the the recommendations of the Flexner report were to be adopted and implemented was basically left up to the AMA, which at the time did not even let black physicians into into its ranks. I, I don't want to, you know, kind of like neglect or disregard the impact of that constellation that the Flexner Report and the organizations behind it had on Black medical education. But at the same time, I think so many larger structures have been in place even prior, even before the Flexner Report and have continued to sort of like grow and function after the implementation of the Flexner Report that, I, that it's hard to say that without it, we would have had, we would have actually had 35,000 more doctors, black doctors. What are you optimistic about? 
nothing. <laughs> if not, then then why why aren't you optimistic? It, I think the more things change, the more they're the same. Um, um, yeah, I'm not an optimist. I just I I tend to just kind of expect the worst and 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 or just have the lowest of expectations, and then that way it's hard to be disappointed. Hearing Max say that, I couldn't help but feel a little unoptimistic myself. I mean, these days, schools and and medical organizations are starting to recognize the more problematic aspects of the Flexner Report. In 2020, the Association of American Medical Colleges removed Flexner's name from an award, citing his racist and sexist views. But this kind of recognition from an organization can often feel too little, too late. It was very disappointing that the AAMC, that the reason that they listed was about Flexner and his behaviors and attitudes as a person. Like, oh, this man was racist and therefore we will not have an award named after him. And like not necessarily like engaging in a sort of like self-reflection and like, oh, what were organizational actions that were taken, right, in relation to Flexner that led us to this moment where we are in right now to the point where, yes, we should probably strip this award of its name, Flexner, right? Okay, Flexner and, as a man was racist, and so what, right? Like, what about the, the, the actions, right, that stemmed from the fact that he, he wasn't just a random racist man, he was a powerful man who, like, co-authored or authored this huge document. Again, just a document, but then somebody else had to say, okay, we're, we're going to adopt the recommendations from this document, right? That is not acknowledged on that website where they announce what they're stripping the name of their award. Do you think an, an, an acknowledgement like that would ever come? I don't. I mean, these are things that I don't hold my breath over. I don't care if it's not followed by action. There's never anything wrong with education reform, but... Whenever we have standardizing reforms in the U.S., they always have a racial impact. And it's often racial and ethnic impact that is detrimental. That's Dr. Terry Laws, the University of Michigan professor who you also heard in our first episode. She wrote an article about the Flexner Report last year for the AMA Journal of Ethics. And in the case of the Flexner Report, it was detrimental to uh, institutions that served uh, Black Americans. It was uh, detrimental to institutions that educated women. Now, someone might say, well, what difference does it make? You know, um, um, medicine is science and science is objective. To which I say hooey, because nothing nothing is ever as objective as we think, right? That there are always... Um, social impacts to what to things that we call neutral. I, I can't read his mind, but essentially, part of if we think about the ethos of how Africans and African descended people have been uh, included in society, from if we think about it in terms of in those utilitarian terms, he is still saying, right. What purpose do Black physicians serve for us? They, the purpose that they serve is utilitarian. Keep Black people healthy so that don't, they don't contaminate white folk. 
Because one of the things that we don't think about is that, especially in the South, black people and white people live together in community, right? They live in very, they live in proximity. She's referring to that gross excerpt that I read with Max, where Flexer says, quote, the Negro must be educated not only for his sake, but for ours. Serving black folk is serving the nation. So it is racist then to have systems of admissions into the workforce, right? These are becoming a physician, becoming a physician educator. These are very expensive. It is expensive to create a doctor. We need to make sure that, that the more than half of physicians who are white and who have gone into medicine right, to, to create good as well, that they understand their Black patients. Racism has so many different layers. I'm focused on the culture, social and cultural impacts of those layers, such that they keep us from having the best, or the, as we say in health disparities, optimal health for the most number of people's does medical education, does it need to be overhauled in such a way that it includes more like education or teaching around racism and health inequities? So I'm not teaching in a medical school, but I do teach undergrads, right, who, who aspire to medical school. And I do serve on committees that help them move in that direction. In, in the medicine and the sciences, we think about these in very objective terms. We think that, that um, students are, are, are taught to think about um, what they're learning in these very objective terms. So we think about science and we think about medicine as it is, it is objective. It's just factual. But, we, but that requires that we overlook how facts actually get produced. So there's a scientific method is one thing, right? So we have this objective method, but but what questions do we ask to create a scientific method? Speaking to Max, I feel a little less optimistic. Um, but speaking to Terry, I feel a little more optimistic, honestly. I feel there's something that can be done if we're willing to put in that work and change it. You know, this is a really critical moment this moment right now uh, in America, we are, we are at a crossroads. I'm not really emotional about this, I'm sorry. <laughs> Our nation is at a crossroads. We can choose to move forward by looking back at the really difficult history that we have created of our own choice, that we have, um, every time we refuse to look at our racist history, we refuse being better. We refuse living into the creeds that we have talked about for hundreds of years at this point, and we do nothing but damage ourselves. Without our choosing to fully look at that history, 
to stop ridiculous debates about what critical race theory means and how it's important or unimportant. If we do not choose to understand structural, systemic exclusion of every kind, we will continue to fail to live up to all that we can be as a nation. Until we decide that we want to fully look at the, the social and cultural impacts of whether it be the Flessner Report or any other kind of reform that ends up having so-called unintended consequences, the, in, the intended consequence will be that it is to our own, own detriment. It's interesting and a bit weird to reflect on the Flexner Report, which has been this historic document with many racist undertones that has impacted HBCUs as medical establishments in this country. And then to fast forward to today, 2022, when we saw these racist bomb threats against these same institutions, it does make you wonder what kind of work needs to be done in this country to, to really reach the change that so many of us want. To you, what do you feel is the legacy of the Flexner Report on Meharry? Some myths you never dispel. That's Sandra Parham, the Meharry librarian. We met her at the beginning of this episode. Dispelling the myth that a Meharry or an African-American doctor is not as good as is still out there in a lot of people's mind, you know? So, you know, Flexner was like a Trump once you start something, it never leaves people's mind and it just, uh, it's a seed and it goes on and it passes on and it passes on. Do you ever really dispel those kinds of myths? When you see a black doctor uh, coming to you and uh, I don't care if it's a white hospital or a black hospital, if you're a white person, what do you think? Are you going to ask him where did you go to school? Are you going to ask him how long he's been practicing? You know, those myths don't go away. Uh, I'm a Southerner, but I've lived in Detroit, I've lived in Houston, uh, I've lived in uh, Los Angeles, and, you know, regions don't matter. People and their attitudes and history, I don't care what part of the country you live in, you think twice. And um, someday you'll eventually, I pray in my children, grandchildren's lifetime, that when you see a doctor uh, and if it's a Black doctor, I'm going to think you had to really overcome to get where you are. I'm not thinking you're less than. I'm thinking you're more than. Through my reporting and through speaking to so many sources who are Black doctors and physicians of color, I wonder if things will improve with the increased awareness or increased pressure to diversify medicine at all stages, at, at all of its ranks, in hopes of helping close health equity gaps. But I think there's enough people who do care about this issue, and there's enough pressure being applied that maybe things will change, will get better in the coming years. I know that for change to come, it's going to take more than just words or, or studies. It's, it's going to take action. So I think action is coming. I think we are at a time when action is, I hate to say around the corner, but at least in the queue. 
It will be interesting to see developments in this area in the coming years and decades, but I think we're on the right path. So I'm a little more optimistic than Max, but I don't know if I'm much more optimistic. So what does change within medicine look like? Next episode, we'll take a look at the movement towards anti-racist medical education. Till then. Thank you so much for listening and for being part of our Color Code community. If you like the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe. And if you have any thoughts for us, you can reach us at statnews.com. Our team here at STAT is Alyssa Ambrose, Hyacinth Empanado, Teresa Gaffney, Crystal Milner, and me, Nick St. Fleur. Kevin Seaman is our engineer, and Tino Delamerset is our intern. Our theme music is by Brian Joel. Special thanks to Sandra Parham, Dr. Max Jordan Gumini-Tiako, Dr. Todd Savitt, and Dr. Terry Laws. Thanks to the Commonwealth Fund for supporting this podcast. We've got a bunch of photos and some more reading on this topic at statnews.com. So please, go check it out. 